really, really fucking bad, but by far, first couple minutes, funniest part. I mean, he, he drops dimes all over the place on how to lose a guy in 10 days. All right? <laughs> he does. It takes right. a lot to shit... It takes a lot to shift focus off McConaughey, but I think he pulls it off. He was the only good thing in Night of Cups. Well, I mean, Terrence Malick's okay. Yeah, you're right. The scenery was there was good too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so excited. He almost got a starring turn in Seventeen again, and then they dump all the good lines to Efron. Like, what? What the hell is that? Yeah, but if we know anything about Efron, we know he can deliver a line. That's true. That's. I mean, he steals my heart. He can okay. also sing, can he? Efron? Oh yeah. Probably not. <laughs> Anyway, um, hey guys, it's Cole. I'm here with Jed. We're here for our next episode of Cigarette Burns, a movie podcast. Uh, today, we are going to talk about not just the history and not just our favorites, but everything we can think of about romantic comedies. Because we're, we're after the Oscars, there's a little bit of a lull. We just had Valentine's Day, so we were feeling extra romantic, okay? And we thought that we should have some of that overflow go to you guys. So we wanted to talk about romantic comedies, which personally... One of my favorite genres of movies. Mine as well, man. I really, I've always loved romantic comedies. You can always throw one on in the background. You can sit there and watch it intently, but uh, they really fit any mood, I would say. I, I have been mad for years now that the romantic comedy seems to have kind of gone away. They were always making them and you could find some, but they weren't really good and they weren't, studios weren't packing them the way that they used to. And it, it seems like they're having a bit of a rebirth, which I'm hoping, but we're going to, we're going to get into that today. But before we do that... We wanted to give you some reviews, so Jed, take it away, man. What you been watching? I uh, I saw a few films. Um, one that I saw was called Upgrade, and I gave that a 6.4 out of 10. It's a decent little sci-fi thriller. It's got Logan Marshall Green. Um, it's kind of like a futuristic AI body uh, biology bullshit stuff where like he can have different appendages that take over and all this weird futuristic shit. But it worked. I enjoyed it. It was a fun little sci-fi film. Logan Marshall Green, unfortunately, is a very good actor, but looks too much like Tom Hardy. So Tom Hardy gets basically every role that Logan Marshall Green would have been considered for. So he gets this kind of <laughs> almost direct-to-streaming uh, film. Check it out if you like sci-fi action thrillers. The plot, pretty predictable, but it's shot with a really good style. Uh, something else I, I saw that was not great is Happy Death Day to You, which I give a 3.4 out of 10. All 3.4 of that is for Jessica Roth. Um, she's got a future. <laughs> she is has really good comedic timing. No one else in this movie is good. Um, I like the original. The only reason I saw the, the sequel, but they rushed the sequel out clearly. It parried itself. It was making references to Back to the Future series. Um subtly and then was like hey in case you didn't see those subtle references let's shove them right in your fucking face for the rest of the film um it was all over the place with the tone it, it hit all the beats it felt it needed to but there was no rhythm to it so it didn't sound like a song that made any sense um if you want to use that analogy or metaphor so not a good film 3.4 out of 10 the last thing i saw which i really enjoyed was gerald's game which i give a 7.8 out of 10 this is uh, an adaptation of a Stephen King um, horror story of the same name, and this is on Netflix. The story for a long time was considered unfilmable, but Mike Flanagan honestly knocked it out of the fucking park in bringing it to the screen. It worked so well. Carla Gugino has never been better. That includes Son-in-Law, which is saying a lot. Um, By the way, before, before <laughs> you move on, we, we were talking about this earlier. I still can't figure out, and if any listeners out there know the answer to this, please let us know how Carla Gugino hasn't had a bigger career. It makes no sense. I, she's I think so she should good. have been a big star. She should yeah. have been a mega star. She's beautiful. She's talented. She's everything you would want in an actress. It, 
And she seems by all intents and purposes to be such a nice person. So maybe yeah. that's the problem. Maybe she's not a bitch enough. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> too nice. Too nice. In too good of shape. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but basically, I recommend if you do watch Gerald Game, watch it with the lights off. There's some really good scares. But it really has a good overall message of self-empowerment. Um, so I really enjoyed it. So those are the movies that I was watching. Cole, have you been able to see anything? Yeah, I saw a couple things this week. Uh, one was a documentary, Studio 54, the documentary, again, streaming on Netflix. And it tells the really, really compelling story that I think a lot of people are familiar with. But uh, like anything, we don't really know the ins and outs. And this was the rise and fall of Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager and how they started Studio 54, which is the biggest club I think people would agree that ever existed. But it only ran for 33 months. And Is that true? Has, 33 months? That is true. That is wow. true. The, the actual the actual club was open, I think, for almost 10 years. But that really golden era of Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro and Diana Ross showing up all the time, 33 months. And so it kind of went from the day they opened to the day they reported to prison, which is just always a great story. But it has current interviews with Ian Schrager, who's still alive. And don't shed a tear for Ian Schrager. He's a hotel magnate. He's doing just fine. Um, it has interviews with Jack Dushy, who was kind of their silent third partner, former busboys, bartenders, other regulars at the club. Really cool, you know, just listening to them describe, particularly now that they're all in their 60s and 70s, describe this really specific era of disco that was so short-lived, but, you know, so vibrant and full of life. Uh, there was also great footage from back in the day, uh, you know, interviews with Liza Minnelli, a really intriguing, you know, minute or minute and a half with a very young Michael Jackson and anything, it really makes you hate that 98 Mark Christopher movie with Ryan Phillippe. Uh, Jesus. I went back to watch it just because I was curious. I saw it when I was 15 and thought it was bad. And I thought, ah, maybe I wasn't old enough. I didn't quite get it. Didn't that and have, I went uh, back and watched it. Didn't it have Nev Campbell in it? It did. It had Nev Campbell. It has a really good cast. I mean, honestly, Mark Ruffalo plays a bit part in it, plays one of Phillippe's friends. Um, it was Mike Myers' first dramatic role. So I thought I'd give it another chance. It turns out uh, I had it right when I was 15. That thing is just absolutely terrible. Do you want to hear my Nev Campbell joke that I made up? I, who doesn't? Uh, yeah, this is Nev. I have a reservation. It's for a party of five. So today will be the last episode of Cigarette Burns. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I couldn't resist, man. I had to. Come on. <laughs> I think Breckin Meyer is like shirtless in that movie too, right? Breckin Meyer, Selma Hayek's in it. Yeah. Like it's just, it, it just doesn't quite connect. It's not well told. It's not well shot. But that's completely different than the documentary I watched because that was compelling. I give it a six point eight out of ten, and it does what I think any good documentary should do, which is you want to investigate further after you watch it. So, uh, I definitely suggest you give it a watch. About an hour and a half on Netflix. The other thing I watched is called Little Italy. So in, in preparation for today's romantic comedy episode, I thought, let me watch a really current romantic comedy. I saw Crazy Rich Asians, which we'll get into. And I turned on Netflix or Amazon, and Little Italy was there. It stars Hayden Christensen and Emma Roberts now. I hadn't seen Hayden Christensen in anything in a while. How about you? I have not seen him in a long time, but I will say Little Italy, <laughs> I mean, New York is a great setting. For romantic See, comedies, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Curveball, this is not Little Italy in New York. This is Little Italy in Toronto, Canada. So, uh, it's just <laughs> Tell it's Mike, just okay, bad. hold on here. Did you like, know there was bad. a Little Italy in Toronto, Canada before watching this well, film? I, I do now. <laughs> I mean, it was so bad. Like, it, the jokes were 
crude, and I have a perfectly crude sense of humor, but the jokes were gross and bad, and some of the, the grossest ones were used as pickup lines, which just works even better. Uh, it's very obvious that Hayden Christensen's a good 10 plus years older than Emma Roberts, who they're supposed to have kind of grown up together. And she always she looks goes young, away to be no matter what, right? Yeah, like, she does. Yeah. She does. And and she, by the way, her talent is way out distancing the rest of this movie because the performances are bad down the line. The script is bad down the line. And the guy who directed it, Donald Petrie, I mean, he directed How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Grumpy Old Men, Miss Congeniality, Mystic Pizza. I mean, these are good films. These are good romantic comedies. And this one is, it might be the worst one I've ever seen. It's just every racial and gender stereotype you could imagine is is just hit on the nose and just in a really tasteless way. I mean, there's straight out racist scenes in this film. It, it is not good. And, you know, there's nothing original. They have a gay Asian bartender named Luigi. I'm sorry, that's not original. It's just, it's just awful. He 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 has a scene where he comes out to Hayden Christensen's character, and it comes out of nowhere. And, and it just nothing in the movie makes sense. Uh, oh it gets God. a 1.7 out of 10, and the only reason it gets 1.7 is because Danny Aiello's in it. So contractually, we have to give it a 1.7. Yeah, if if you were wondering where Danny Aiello's at, I found him. He's making the movie Little Italy. So those are the two I watched. Um, I would say definitely check out Studio 54, hard pass on Little Italy. It's not even, it's not even a, it's so bad, it's good situation. It just, don't waste your time. Oh boy. Well, I think it's about time to get into romantic comedies. What do you think, Cole? Absolutely. I'm ready. Let's do this. <laughs> um, romantic comedy is such a broad term. I think, you know, if the movie has comedy and it has romance, that does not make it a romantic comedy, but it's such a subjective thing to so many people and everyone has their own definition where this is what I want to see in a romantic comedy this is what you know this other person wants to see what they consider good so I think we should just briefly discuss some of the elements that make a good romantic comedy in our opinion so I'll I'll go first here so like there has to be a meet cute I really want to see these two characters meet each other for the first time so some of these um, romantic comedies where you don't see that you don't and you're kind of dumped into the middle of it you don't really feel like you're a part of their relationship. And usually there's a big proclamation in some scene. It's really embarrassing. It's in front of a lot of people. Most of the time there's a happy ending. Um, and it kind of, they work in any setting. So there's a universal topic because people finding love works everywhere. Um, these are some of the elements that I try to look for. And then what, what about you? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, part of it is you get good, witty banter and dialogue. They're typically highly optimistic films. Uh, you know, they're, they're brightly shot. There's not anything that's going to get you super worried about the safety of any of the characters. You just become inherently invested in the relationship. And, and personally, for it to qualify as a romantic comedy for me, the movie at its core needs to be about two people getting together or or four people getting together, mm-hmm. whatever the, the romances are. Because we've seen some newer ensemble movies where there might be multiple relationships going on. You want to see those relationships. That's that's the driving force of the film. Yeah, you're rooting you know, for you people, some... right? You're rooting for people to get together. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and I think this genre, more so than whether it's sci-fi, straight drama, or horror, or any other genre you can think of, I think is highly personal. And that's why these movies are so inherently fun. And also, they, they connect with people because I think anybody can have that feeling or has that memory of either being in love having unrequited love, yearning after someone, 
or not understanding why something they want or someone they want doesn't want to be with them or vice versa. And because of that universal appeal, I think that's why everybody enjoys these films. You may not be able to relate to the setting, but you can relate to the core essence of what these people are going through because everyone goes through it. Absolutely. You know, so you might not understand their job. You might not understand where they're coming from, but you know that feeling. You know that feeling of calling someone on the phone and then the voicemail picks up and you go silent. You just hang up. You know that feeling. Yeah. We've all done that. We've all had the swingers uh, opening there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We've all left 11 messages and the one to kill ourselves. I remember that. Um, so another thing about these romantic comedies is uh, they always have a line, at least hopefully at least one memorable line, maybe more. And so before we get into like the history of romantic comedies, I thought it would be good if we kind of revisit some of those some of those best lines. So we've kind of put together something for you guys. It's about five minutes long, but it really shows you all these great lines that we love from all these romantic comedies. So without further ado, take it away, Heath. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. You'd be like heaven to touch. I want to hold you so much. At long last love has arrived And I thank God I'm alive You're just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you What's happening, hot stuff? What is your name? Harold. Harold Chasen. Oh, how do you do? I'm Dame Marjorie Chardin, but you may call me Maud. How do you do? Nice to meet you. Well, thank you. I think we're going to be great friends, don't you? As you wish. I've got moves you've never seen. <laughs> we are, uh, we're getting married. Who, who is getting married? You and I. You and I are getting married. Yes. We are. Getting married. We are getting married. Yes. Can't fight a can't fight a love like ours. So, uh, uh, are we good? But you don't understand, Osgood. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. I saw that going differently in my mind. Miss Stoger, my plastic surgeon doesn't want me doing any activity where balls fly at my nose. Well, there goes your social life. I'll tell you what I'm doing this weekend. I'm getting laid. have what she's having. Are you saying I'm some kind of mental person? Oh, the fame thing isn't really real, you know. And don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. I like you very much. Uh, apart from the smoking and the drinking and the vulgar mother, and the verbal diarrhea. No, I like you very much. Just as you are. And I knew it the very first time I touched her. It's like coming home. Only to know home I, I ever known. I was just taking her hand to help her out of a car. And I knew it. It was like magic. You had me at hello. Hello. 
shop girl. Don't cry. And the dreams that you I wanted it to be you. I wanted it to be you so And, and much as it grieves me to say it, it, it might be that the people I love is, in fact, you. Well, this is a surprise. Yeah. Ten minutes at Elton John's, you're as gay as a maple. I love you, Miss Kublik. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kublik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. What happened after he climbed up the tower and rescued her? She rescues him right back. Welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? Everybody comes here. This is Hollywood, land of dreams. Some dreams come true, some don't. But keep on dreaming. This is Hollywood. Always time to dream. So keep on dreaming. Topic. Wow. I just want to go watch those movies now. I know. You know, when it comes to romantic comedies, it always seems like the script, which they're not as easy to write. It's really easy to write a shitty one. <laughs> but they're, the, the good ones, the ones that we always remember, they're not as easy to write, I think, as everybody thinks that they are. And I think that's a beat that comedy always takes, is everyone thinks it's easy to write comedy. But these scripts all seem like they are tuned to a moment, that they're writing to a moment, whether it's you had me at hello, okay? We're writing towards that climax or that moment, and the best romantic comedies nail it with those lines. And with the actors. Nail it with those scenes. Because absolutely, you try to take uh, someone other than Julia Roberts to deliver, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy. It comes off cheesy as she delivers that line so perfectly in that movie. I just yeah, like when you just delivered that line to me, I wanted to walk out. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, well, you had I've, no shot at getting me that's, because of the way that you that's said true. that. True. Yeah, that makes Julia sense. Roberts back in the day had a shot. I'm just saying. I was, you know, I'm more method. I wasn't in it at the moment, so I got. I have to take that back at some other time. But anyway. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that these movies, at their core, have that the, those just scenes that crescendo that rises more so than certain other movies and we all remember the lines or we all remember when the song starts to build and and that beautiful scene sort of unfolds in front of us and that's what's exciting to me in watching some of these movies is what scene is that going to be how are they going to get me there because i know what the destination is yep 90 percent of the time i know the destination how am i going to get there and because of these sort of formulaic rules that rom-coms i think set out it allows for as the genre has matured into its eighth decade or so people trying to deconstruct that and reconstruct you know take chances with that form but they always sort of are one degree of separation away from that standard formulaic romantic comedy i mean because on the surface we have a basic story and i think uh frank drebin probably describes it best it's the same old story boy finds girl boy loses girl girl finds boy boy forgets girl boy remembers girl girl dies in a tragic blimp accident over the Orange Bowl on New Year's Day. Good year? No, the worst. 
yeah, there's always a blimp, right? So anyway, <laughs> let's get into some history here. So Cole, why don't you kick us off with the 30s and 40s? What were those times like for romantic comedies? So with romantic comedies, they, they truly start, if you want to get very technical, back with like Shakespeare, okay? Midsummer Night's Dream, things like that. Yeah. I love that play. <laughs> Who doesn't? I but, do. I really do. But, you know, you, you also saw that when you got a lot of the teen sort of romantic comedies in the 90s where they started trying to remake the Shakespearean tales, Taming of the Shrew, things like that. But when it when they came into films, you know, in the 20s, you had Charlie Chaplin making some silent films, but they really started getting into that screwball comedy, which I think most modern romantic comedies are, are an offshoot of the screwball comedy in the 30s and 40s where you have things like Philadelphia Story and It Happened One Night, which wins five Oscars. You know, you don't have that very commonly with a romantic comedy. Even the most successful romantic comedies may get a writing nomination, but they're not... Yeah, they're even not, this year. Yeah. I was extremely surprised when uh, the lead actress from Crazy Rich Asians got a Golden Globe nomination. Yeah. Like, not because she was bad. I'm just like, these films don't get recognized Yeah, you like just that. don't see it happen terribly often. And I think that I think part of that was the thirst for romantic comedies because they went away for so long. But, uh, you know, Adam's Rib. This is a Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn. You had that Tracy Hepburn stretch where they were making a bunch of films. And you have witty banter and sort of these hijinks that go along trying to figure out how we're going to take the two leads and, and sort of get them together. And that was kind of the birth of that, which then uh, was emblematic, I think, of that era, you know, of, of that era as we moved throughout the 40s and then into the 50s. Yeah, Bringing Up Baby is one I remember from the 30s and 40s because I was yep, dragging that film. fucking movie when I was a like seven years old. Don't show a seven-year-old this film. Like, no. Really, come on. It's just... But also, don't ignore, if you're a lover of romantic comedies and, you know, you may be a Gen Xer or a millennial or, you know, under 50... Don't ignore these movies from the 30s and the 40s, especially the 50s and the 60s. I mean, they are hilariously funny. Um, some yeah. of them, especially as we move into the 50s and the 60s, where you start to get a little bit more sarcastic, a little darker, maybe even a little wittier with some more of that modern uh, comedy. They're hilarious. I mean, they're, they're fall out of your chair funny. The subject matter is timeless. So that's why it works in any era. Yeah. Because everyone goes through this stuff. Well, and so, who doesn't love watching people fall in love? Yeah. I mean, I know I do. Yeah. <laughs> you, so you, you just made me uncomfortable somehow. I don't know how that worked. No, I don't know how. Yeah, we, we'll move on from that. Um, so fifties and sixties, uh, they kind of changed a little bit here. We had these battle of the sexes types comedies. The they were very reflective of gender roles at the time, where women had their place, men had their place. They're kind of opposites. Um, let's see. Let's see what happens. How do these two people who seemingly should not get together get together? And uh, I think. Was it you were talking to me about Billy Wilder? Like he yeah. was in, insane the production he had during this time. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. I mean, Billy Wilder was so prolific just for his entire career, not just in the fifties and sixties, but he went on a tear, you know, from about fifty nine to sixty nine, where he came out with films like The Apartment, Some Like It Hot, Sabrina, the original Sabrina with Humphrey Bogart and Audrey Hepburn. Uh, Seven Year Itch, Kiss Me Stupid, which is a great Dean Martin, Kim Novak film that a lot of people haven't seen. You know, when you think of the Rat Pack and, and being in movies, typically you just go straight to Frank Sinatra. But Dean Martin was fantastic in Kiss Me Stupid. Uh, and Kim Novak, who's a classic, one of the best actors of her era. But yeah, he wrote... I, I got to tell you, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but Some Like It Hot. I saw that movie when I was a kid. Uh, my dad sat me down and was like, going to watch this. I'm like, oh, fucking black and white. I don't want to sit through this shit. I... From the first scene, I was hooked. It's that so good. That movie is so fucking good. Mm -hmm. Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe, 
It's just such a good movie. I recommend it to anyone out there. You need to watch this film. Well, and one of the things I think Billy Wilder is so good at is he clearly defines his characters. And because he does that, particularly in some like it hot, you really love all three of the main characters. Mm-hmm. You, you have this desire to see them all get what they want. Whereas something like The Apartment, you have Fred McMurray, who, you know, from Flubber fame, Disney really didn't even want him to be in The Apartment because he plays the villain. And he does it so well, but he's so well defined that you just, you instantly hate him because of what he's wearing, how he walks onto the screen, the first couple lines, and you just think, this guy's an asshole, I don't want him to get anything he wants, I want Jack Lemmon to fall in love with Shirley MacLaine. And the whole movie is about Jack Lemmon trying to tell Shirley MacLaine, I love you. And the thing about these romantic comedies and just these kind of films in general is you can't just take the script and put it in someone's hand and automatically get it knocked out of the park because... The Apartment, I don't know if they've admitted it, but the movie Loser with Jason Biggs and Mina Suvari is basically a direct remake of The Apartment and is not good. And all the stuff that works in The Apartment does not work in Loser because, well, honestly, the actors aren't strong enough, the script isn't strong enough, the direction's not strong enough. It just shows you that just because you have this basic premise, you really need all these elements to work in order for you to get a film that really works and and is good. Well, and that's a deeper conversation, I think, too, about remakes, where if you're going to remake a movie, that's fine. I have no problem with remakes. I have no problem with reboots, so long as the people who are producing that have something to say. If you don't have anything to say other than I changed the setting, so I went from sort of a, a business in New York to college that's not enough of a difference to to say please remake this movie um i think i do remember you know there was a lot of influence on trying to cash in on that american pie fame so god bless him for (laughs) trying i hope everybody got paid but that movie is not worth your time but you know this era not just billy wilder who i think is the king of that era i think undeniably with respect to romantic comedies he was the king of the 60s uh late 50s early 60s but you also get breakfast at tiffany's you know truman capote's uh, story that the classic Audrey Hepburn George Papard film, which you know sort of takes a a leap out of just purely comedic situations, and I mean that's kind of a serious subject. I mean we're talking about people who are basically getting paid for sex. Yeah, yeah, it, it is a very it's a very serious subject, and it's handled in such a light manner um, in the film. So you can kind of one of the things about romantic comedies is you can take something that's a serious subject. And you can go over it with kind of a light finish because, like, for example, Pretty Woman, I mean, every little girl's like, I can't, I would love to be Julia Roberts in that movie. Really, you want to be a prostitute on Hollywood Boulevard who just gets rescued by Richard Gere. Like, that's the thing about that movie. When you take a step back and you take away all the other elements around it, you're like, well, at the core of this is a very dramatic, deep uh, subject matter that you're really trying to discuss here. And, And that's what makes these romantic comedies so good is that they can take those with a light brush stroke and you kind of forget all the seriousness with which the environment is that they're made. Well, and you know, one of the great things, you know, Holly Golightly is one of the best characters and maybe ever written for screen, particularly of that era. And Audrey Hepburn was the perfect actress to bring that together. I mean, not only is she beautiful, she's brilliant. She radiates that brilliance. She gets it. I think more than anybody else that's in the film, she totally understands what her character is about. And because you love her so much, again, you connect with her. You connect with her desires, not just sexual desires, but her desires in life to to get out of where she is. It just makes you root for her. And a little side note, little asterisk next to that movie, while I'm sure it has a you know something like an 85% or 80% on Metacritic, possibly the most racist uh, part ever played by Mickey Rooney, where he just disgustingly plays an over-the-top, Asian man 
uh, Mr. Yunioshi. So watch out for that. It's it, it was terrible then, and boy, does it it's just almost unwatchable today. For the listener out there, I was going to bring that up, but I had zero doubt that Cole would if I didn't. <laughs> so that's why I didn't. I ain't going to miss that. <laughs> um, so after the 50s and 60s, we kind of got into the 70s and 80s. Um, and How did that happen? How did we just know, roll right into of, the 70s after the 60s? We just roll after it's crazy. Um, and with that came the advent of the rating system, which kind of allowed more artistic freedom, I guess you'd say, in terms of pushing boundaries. Uh, Obviously, the way the times were going, they were all leading towards that. So you ended up with rom-coms that were very different in terms of how the characters interacted and how they discussed sex and more provocative subject matter. And in this time period, you end up with films like uh, Annie Hall, When Harry Met Sally, 16 Candles, uh, She's Gotta Have It, you know, the Spike Lee film we discussed previously. So um, you really pushed boundaries, and I think it opened up the genre immensely. Well, I, I agree with that. And I, I think, too, one of the things that we see in the 70s, particularly, maybe even more so than the 80s, is I, I, I personally believe there's a little bit more cynical tone, maybe even a little darker look at romance in the 70s. Uh, you know, having Woody Allen being a romantic lead, and, and you know, you, you sort of have that, <laughs> you know, anxious, kind of pessimistic, negative view of romance. A lot of neuroses. Yeah, a lot of neuroses. That's a better way to put it. And so I think, too, you have these films that are sort of emblematic of the era that they're in. I think they really reflect what's going on in society at the time. So in the 70s, when it is maybe a little more negative, maybe a little more um, generally pessimistic and cynical about the world, you get a movie like Annie Hall, whereas in the 50s and 60s, things are brighter, things are rocking and rolling. You start getting things like a Some Like It Hot, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you get these films where when Harry Met Sally, I mean, I'm sure for the time, even now, I mean, the subject matter on there, it's taking a complete raw look at men and women and relationships between them. Yeah. Uh, Annie Hall, to a certain extent, 16 Candles, you really get into the, the teen psyche because a lot of these other films, we've been talking about the perspective of adults, but now you kind of see John Hughes. John Hughes writes for teens, but he doesn't write for them like they're idiots. He writes for them like they're very intelligent People just kind of exploring the world within the confines that they have of, hey, I don't have everything figured out, but I mean, I'm becoming an adult here. And how do I kind of function in this world? And all, everything's a new experience. Well, and, and 16 Candles, I think it's overlooked a lot. People are talking about romantic comedies. You know, if you look up list AFI's top 10, AFI's top 50, other people's top 10s or whatever lists that they want to make, you miss a lot of the teen ones. And, I, and personally, I believe the the best example of it and the earliest example of it is 16 Candles. And again, it, it goes back to everybody can relate to being in high school. Everybody can relate to having a crush, to knowing what that feels like, to being, to, to that being the most important thing. You know, I remember being in high school and school's important. Sure, that's what we tell our parents. But what's really important? I have this person I really like. I hope they see me today. I hope they say hi to me today. Oh my God, if I sit next to them in the lunchroom, I'm going to lose my mind. Like, I, re- you know, I remember that. And I think most people remember something like that. And that's why these movies, I don't care if it's 30, 40, 50 years on, you still will always connect to that feeling. Yeah, who you got to sit next to on the bus was one of the most important things throughout the day that you're thinking about. And uh, it's really hard to remember those times. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But you get taken back when you watch these films because it really is is nostalgic and and good because they just approach it from from a logical standpoint of, that's what these kids are going through. This is what I remember. Let's write to them as as 
they are and as I was at the time, and you end up and, with something really good. And John Hughes was the master at that. I mean, he, he unquestionable. Master. I mean, I know he wrote Beethoven second, but he also had some really good films. <laughs> we can blame that one on Charles Grodin. <laughs> so, yeah, when, when we get out of the 80s and, you know, you, you sort of roll into the 90s and the 2000s, it, it felt like, again, going back in time to that more traditional framework. Okay. Yeah. So, again, I, I personally believe this had to do with getting out of the darkness maybe of the 70s and the 80s and rolling into the 90s where there was a little bit more positivity, a little bit more optimism. Um, you know, economy's looking great. All of a sudden, bright colors are back in romantic comedies. And you have <laughs> yeah. a slew of great ones in the 90s and the early 2000s. You know, I, obviously, you got Sleepless in Seattle's, the You've Got Males, uh, you know, The Best Man, The Wood. I love The Wood. And there's some conversation there as to whether that's truly a romantic comedy, whether it's a drama and a comedy, or, or you know, what really makes the romantic comedy. But I'm going to throw it in there because I fucking love that movie. I love something new, and I think it falls into the same category. Yeah, something new is so good. Sanaa Lathan, her, her double feature of Something New and Love and Basketball, I could watch that every single day of the week. I can't wait to the Love and Basketball deep dive. I really can't. Yeah, we're going to do fun. that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, there was also something a little bit new that was happening. It kind of started in the early 90s with this British invasion of films that were all written by Richard Curtis. I mean, this guy was... Sort of had a Billy Wilder-esque run. I'm not going to put him on that uh, echelon. But he's the guy who wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill. He introduced America to Hugh Grant. So thanks for that, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones' Diary, Love Actually, and then the one that Hugh Grant's not in, Wimbledon. Okay? So. I would love to have seen Wimbledon as Peter Cole. I mean, obviously Paul <laughs> Bettany did an amazing job, but i just love to see him stumbling around on a fucking grass tennis court because that would be hilarious to me. <laughs> him just apologizing constantly. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry I won that point. You know, That's my British accent, by the way. That was not good. Um, no, that was... It's the best I've ever heard you do it. So don't, don't beat yourself up. So one of the things that these movies also got back to was this core of very clearly delineated, I have a person A and person B... And they're both successful to some degree. You know, you don't really have a lot of these movies where somebody's starting out from a destitute spot, okay? Where back in the 80s, you might have had your uh, Pretty Woman, where Julia Roberts not doing great at the beginning of that movie, okay? No. We definitely have that that class culture thing. Whereas You've Got Mail, Kathleen Kelly and Joe Fox are both doing great. They run their own businesses. He's a magnate. Yeah, she runs a small store, but she's doing okay. She's got her apartment in the village. Are they going to get together, you know? I also I also want to point out the fact that a lot of these films put people in situations where the relationship is explored more and we often don't see them, you know, quote unquote, hook up until the very right. end. And I think one of the prime examples of this is Sleepless in Seattle, which full disclosure here, I saw that movie in the theater three times when it came out. Um, I love that film. And it's great. The, the two main characters don't even talk to each other until the last scene. Yeah, sure. There's that scene earlier on where they say, you know, hello, but they don't actually talk to each other knowing who they are or anything to, to further the relationship until the very end. The fact that that was a romantic comedy that pulled that off, that movie would not have been made in any other generation. It took it took that moment in time for it to happen, and it was so successful, and it really showed that we can have a romantic comedy where it's not centered on them you know, having sex or hooking up or developing a relationship with each other like that. It kind of happens through other means and, and towards the end, and it all comes together. And I think it's a unique film, but such a good one. Well, and I think all the credit in the world has to be given to Nora Ephron yep. for her for her writing and direction, because that that is absolutely a staple of the types of films that she makes, whether you start with When Harry Met Sally, 
Harry and Sally don't get together at all until the last 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Yep. Sleepless in Seattle, same situation. You've got mail. Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly aren't trying to figure out a relationship until the very end of the movie. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think that that is a great device to use to keep you interested because it's not just, are these two going to get together? But you also get to start asking your question, when are they? How are they? How's this, how's this exactly going to work How out? is this exactly going to happen? Whereas the difference of another movie that I absolutely love, The Proposal, but they're put together instantly. And you're trying to figure out, it's more about... Maybe they fall in love, maybe they don't, but are their family going to figure out this con or whatever? But they're they're sort of put together in this romantic um, bubble almost instantly, you know, first 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, they're fo- they're forced together, and yeah. it's like, okay, how, how are these two characters even going to survive this thing? Because they each want to get, you know, she needs them to get married so that she can stay in the country and keep her job, and he needs this because she's promised a promotion to him, and then you kind of explore, as they're both doing this for a very selfish reason, they both... They fall in love with each other. And the fact that you can kind of take characters where you may not like Sandra Bullock's character in the very beginning, or you may not understand how Ryan Reynolds' character could ever see her as someone he could be with, and the, the film takes you on that journey, and, and by the end you're all you're aboard with them. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's really good because what these films do is they take you on this the relationship journey and you see what each character is going through and... In the end, ideally, if it's worked out, you're like, this all makes sense to me, and this is such a happy ending. Well, and and both devices work. It's not that one's better than the other. I just think that you can have that diversity of storyline and still have a compelling film, one that's funny, one that's, you know, heart-wrenching at times, one that's really emotional. But you can also have different movies that sort of intertwine both of those, Mm -hmm. you know, and... You know, one of the tropes that we haven't talked about that is pretty commonly used in romantic comedies is this sort of almost asinine reason that people get together. Like like something really bizarre that would never happen, i.e. the proposal, this is why they get together. Okay, random proposal to keep a visa, something like that. Uh, you know, Last Holiday is a very common one, which is a movie near and dear to my heart. I love that film. But she gets diagnosed with terminal cancer and has three three weeks to live. Okay. That doesn't happen every day, but that gets that gets the ball rolling. And that's another one which is also a bit on the line as to whether it's a romantic comedy. I count it that way because the movie starts out with her having this unbelievable crush on LL Cool J. So I, I think it absolutely qualifies, even though the movie isn't are those two gonna get together, but it sort of takes a it sort of takes a little slice out of Nora Ephron's book where they're both thinking about each other. While LL Cool J is trying to figure out how to get to her when she went to Europe, you know, so there are elements of they don't get together till the end of the film. But using two people that you can relate to, you can almost tell whatever story you want as long as, like you said, they're the right people. You know, they've got to be compelling characters. And personally, people are going to disagree with me and I can't wait to see our tweets and our emails uh, responding to this. But I'm sorry, ladies, I happen to think that the best romantic comedies happen to be with male leads who are not so outrageously attractive that it's almost uncomfortable to look them in the eyes. Ryan Reynolds not accepting. I love the proposal, but Billy Crystal, Tom Hanks, these guys are not necessarily your traditionally attractive people. Steve Martin. Yeah, I know Steve Martin and Roxanne's one of your favorites. Definitely. These these guys are not traditionally attractive, but man, do they make some of the best romantic comedies that have ever been out there. Yeah, you know, to to counter that point, I mean, it doesn't hurt when they both look like they'd be a really good couple together. Because I'll admit, when you're watching Roxanne and you watch the beginning of it, and obviously it's based on Cyrano de Bergerac's uh, play, and or the Cyrano de Bergerac play, sorry. And he has this huge nose, and Daryl Hannah is this goddess in the 80s. And you're like, this doesn't make sense that this would ever 
happen. That these two would ever be together. And that movie convinces you of it, but you kind of have to suspend some disbelief because still, it didn't really like fully, fully make sense that they would end up together. But uh, that's one of those things where you need to take some of this story with a grain of salt and you need to grant it a premise where, okay, let's see where this goes because I'm not going to say it's bullshit right off the start. Right. And I, and I think that, you know, and just going back very briefly to sort of different forms of telling it, even though the 90s, I think, were returned to that strict format. But one of the things that Richard Curtis did with the British version of the romantic comedy was, I feel like the American version, there's always one hyper-confident character. It could be the man or the woman, but there's one hyper-confident character. Whereas when he brought in his, you know, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, you always had one who was really uncomfortable, brings in that uncomfortable, unsure of yourself, British humor, clumsiness. And then Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, both have the American, where it's Andy McDowell and Four Weddings and a Funeral, it's Julia Roberts and Notting Hill, create that sort of, that base of confidence that guides the male through the movie, which I think was a little bit of a turn. You know, I think that that was definitely a shift in the dynamic uh, that we weren't really seeing. Are you sure that's a Richard Curtis thing, or is that just a Hugh Grant as to how he interprets roles thing? You know, that's a fair point. <laughs> um, I, you know, I didn't used to be a big Hugh Grant fan, and the older I get, the more I dig the shit out of Hugh Grant. I don't know. Oh, uh, I I'm do not going to take I mean, any pots out movie? of the boy. That he did with not with uh, Julianne Moore with nine months or something. Nine months like was that. good. Uh, I like nine months that a lot. Was good. Anytime you can get Goldblum in a movie, I'm I'm on board. <laughs> That's true. And That's a really true. crazy. Didn't that have? I gotta look that up. Didn't that have Tom Arnold in it? It did have Tom Arnold in it. It did. <laughs> Tom Arnold was like basically going to be his brother-in-law. Tom Arnold um, was famous for 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, so that kind of brings us to the present day, and. We're not getting a lot of these films. We really aren't. Everything that we talked about in the previous decades, we're not getting those films. What has replaced those is the ensemble cast. Yep. And we basically get these, uh, The Hangover, Trainwreck. Uh, Trainwreck's not really an ensemble, but Bridesmaids, Girls Trip. You kind of get this where the relationships are the B-plots. And you're not rooting for them to, ooh, you know, get with that person. You're rooting for them to have their friendships kind of restored in yep. so many ways. Like... These characters are also flawed people. Previously in a lot of these um, romantic comedies, either the male or the female was, most of the time the female, was a pretty much perfect character who did everything and just needed to find her, her match. But in these films, like Kristen Wiig, failed business, living with uh, these two British people, um, it's just, it's a comedy of errors is what her life is, and she has to find the one that's going to help her out, but it's her friends that actually help her out in the end anyway. So it's a total shift, but this is what we're getting. Recently, we've had Crazy Rich Asians, though, and I would like to discuss that film real quick because, to me, that film is more comedy than rom-com, and I know I'm in the complete minority. I may be the only one that feels that way. The reason I feel that way is because I'm not along for their journey of how they met. Even in the movie The Breakup, the very first time I see them, there's a meet-cute. We understand their relationship. We get a nice big montage of how their relationship developed. In Crazy Rich Asians, I'm just supposed to be dropped into their world that they're already together and everything's and everything's great. And then we have the struggle with the families and she doesn't know his secret that he's, that he's secretly wealthy. I, I feel like there's a lot more comedic situations there, especially with the Ken Jeong scenes, where it kind of fails in the romance department for me. I know I just lit a fire, and I can't wait to hear what Cole has to say about this. <laughs> no, I I mean, it, I don't really have a ton to add to that just because you're so wrong that I don't necessarily think that I have to really <laughs> respond to it. 
But uh, Crazy Rich Asians is absolutely a romantic comedy. I think it's a throwback romantic comedy. Um, I, lo- I I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'll say that I absolutely loved the filmmaking of it. I think John Chu did a great job. It is bright and colorful with beautiful people. You know, it kind of goes against the grain of, you know, the leading character, you know, maybe not necessarily being attractive because it's my understanding from talking to my wife and others that everyone in that film is beautiful. Um, <laughs> it's, it is, to me, a formulaic romantic comedy, you know, regardless of the casting. I think, aside from that, I don't think it really treaded a whole lot of new ground. But it's without question a romantic comedy because, to me, it doesn't have to be these people meeting or how do they get together. This is, okay, we have a romance but are they going to be able to stay together through the conflict that other people are bringing into it? I don't think it always has to be the conflict that the two main characters give. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm actually looking forward to the sequel, which isn't something I say a lot about romantic comedies. Because I think romantic comedies absolutely sum up all that they need to say and just you move on and you go to the next one. I think one of the most fun questions about romantic comedies in general is, I wonder if they stay together. Like, I wonder if Harry's still with Sally. Oh, they're totally still, they're yeah, totally Harry, still together. Yeah, Harry Come and Sally. She's ordering shit on the side all the time. Yeah, no, so that's true. That's true. I, I respectfully disagree with you, but, you know, to each his own with these romantic comedies, can you at least admit to me that the Ken Jong family scenes were not relevant to that film and didn't really need to be there. No, they weren't. To me, those took there's away. Issues. No, there's issues with Crazy yeah. Rich Asians. It's not a perfect film. I'd watch yeah. it again. I, I really enjoyed it, but no, it's not a perfect film. I think the Ken Jong scenes, as fun and as engaging as Ken Jong is, they were completely superfluous. They had no business being in the movie. They added a comic relief, but there was plenty of comedy to go around, so I didn't necessarily need a comic relief. But one thing I did want to mention about what these present movies have sort of geared themselves toward is a real embrace of the R-rated comedy. They've oh, re- yeah. they've really gone that direction, which I've I've loved. They're they're great. But you know something like Trainwreck, I thought did a great job of marrying the PG thirteen romance with the R-rated comedy because the the sex and the comedy in the very beginning was very R-rated. But everything going on with Bill Hader still embrace that warm, fuzzy, sort yeah. of PG-13 comedy, or a PG-13 romance that you would see from those classic You've Got Mail type of type of films. I mean, Trainwreck, what, what can I say about that? That's one of these films where you want to rush out to see it. The second that trailer <laughs> hit and you knew that movie was released, you were like, in the car, fuck everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I distinctly remember Jesse and I standing outside the hotel waiting for you to pick us up, and then you called and said, I'm already on my way, you're going to have to drive yourself. So I, I do was know halfway how down the road, man. I, I was, know I was halfway to the theater. So that shit was going to be sold out. I didn't want to deal with that. Come on. <laughs> so I, again, I think our love for romantic comedies is very clear. But is there anything that sort of bugs you about the the formula of a romantic comedy or something you'd like to see changed in it? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, man. Honestly. I get tired of the misunderstandings. I know there's it's such a crucial piece to so many romantic comedies, but the the idea that oh the whole movie and hinges on these these certain things and this person thinks that while well, that person thinks that a phone call would solve all yeah, this phones, shit. Yeah, phones, phones, guys. Come on, when these guys when these people get together, just fucking say what's going to solve the problem. Stop trying to add this unnecessary complications to this relationship that is already struggling and, and trying to uh persevere under all over all this stuff these manufactured reasons for why things happen that that's what annoys me uh but that's pretty much it 
And what I about think, you? I think that's going to be one of the bigger problems moving forward is how they're going to solve that. And I did enjoy the way that Crazy Rich Agents, for the most part, tried to solve that, which was he's so in love with his mother and his mother's the one causing all the problems. So I did buy that she didn't want to go to him and say, hey, your mom's like trying to fuck up our whole situation here. Like, so you I did. really think she would not have known that he was rich. I mean, like, really? We're supposed to buy that? I wish everybody could see the look on Jeff's face. Like, he's just disgusted that she didn't know he was rich. I mean, come on. Everyone in that fucking country knows who this guy and his family is, but she she didn't know we're here. I mean, that was it. No idea. She didn't grow up there. But still, she is with him. Like, she's not going to see something lying around. I mean, he's, he's that good at hiding stuff. I would worry about the relationship if he's that good. If he can keep that shit from her, the fact that he's worth a gazillion dollars, what else can he keep from her without much effort? I mean, come on. Well, Hopefully the sequels, the the eventual Crazy Rich Asians 2 and I'm sure 3 because you can't just make 2. I'm sure those hopefully explore that. Well, my, my issues with the formula, back to your question, is I, I would like to see a more diverse array of like female characters because for a very long time, the female character was either a book editor, <laughs> a baker, or in advertising. Like that was sort of across the board 90% of the jobs that <laughs> you saw true. for women. And, and they were all, you know, while the the life on the outside would look perfect, they were all sort of neurotic. You know, this is your 27 dresses. Um, this is your wedding planner, which are both very good movies. Like I'm a huge JLo fan. So wedding planner, made in Manhattan, I'm all in on those. But yeah, they're all, you know, they, they really got pigeonholed into this is the job that we're going to put women into. And so again, I, I'm going back to Crazy Rich Agents because it's sort of what I'm hoping to be the rebirth of the modern romantic comedy and hopefully spawns a lot more different romantic comedies moving forward. But it was, oh, she's an NYU professor of economics. She has yeah. her shit together. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So I that's always been one of my biggest issues is the the perfect on the outside, really troubled on the inside is not something I need them to get away from. It just needs to stop being baker, advertising, journalist, that's it. You know, something like that. Like they, they, they really, there are more professions out there and we can go ahead and explore those. The other is I think we're getting away from maybe that time period where all moms were just looking at their daughters and saying, you need to get a husband. You need to have a man. You got to be in a relationship. You got to have a kid. And so I'm hoping that we can move away from that into what I'm sure are different. Now, again, being a son and not a daughter, I don't have those conversations with my parents, but what I'm assuming are probably different types of conversations, and, and I hope they modernize the format in that way. So th- those are kind of my, my bigger issues and something I would like to see rectified moving forward. Yeah, well, we'll see what they start doing in the future, but all we have is what we have today, and that's some of our favorite romantic comedies over the time. So, Cole, why don't you give me one of your favorite romantic comedies? Let's talk about that for a second. Well, I mean, I feel like I've talked about The Apartment pretty exclusively, almost, <laughs> uh, as one of my favorites. So I'm going to move on from that, but that is... Probably at the end of the day, my favorite romantic comedy. But I'm going to take When Harry Met Sally. Um, I watched it. it I, I've probably seen it 30 times. I watched it again two days ago, just prepping for this. And we we kind of, Jed and I were talking about what, what do we want to get into? Do we just want to focus on one movie? And the more we talked, the more that was just going to be impossible. Because there's way too many good romantic comedies out there to talk to. And we want to give you guys 
as many as we can kind of think of that are worth your time because we want you to maybe catch one you haven't seen. But to get sort of in the mood and to get prepped, I watched When Harry Met Sally. And it's as good the 50th time as it is the first time. I mean, it is so incredibly good and so witty and funny. And the pacing is great. It's only an hour and 38 minutes. I mean, there's so many great moments in that film when you look back on it, you think it'd be worth uh, or you think it would last like two hours. It's, it's quick, it's in and out, and can I just say that it obviously gave America its sweetheart. This is the movie that gave us Meg Ryan and what Meg Ryan was going to be, and she just goes on a tear for the next 10 years. I mean, she has When Harry Met Sally in 89, Joe Versus the Volcano in 90, a beautiful performance in Doors, which I know is not a romantic comedy, but she has a great performance in, in Doors, which I know is a movie you love. I love that film, and she was she was great in it, honestly. Her career, we're going to have to do an episode. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get <laughs> deep into Meg Ryan, because that's a fascinating career, but just, just this tear, she got 93, Sleepless in Seattle, IQ in 94, French Kiss 95, You've Got Mail 98. I mean, that that 10 years, that's an unbelievable run of hits. Yeah, it, it, she is definitely the queen of romantic comedies, and hit after hit after hit and honestly the reason i think we're not really seeing her in too many things these days is because as we said they're not making those kind of movies and that's her profit she's a very good actress yep but i think i don't want to you know ruffle any feathers here this is what she excels at and she's so good at this i mean i saw her in that movie in the land of women um which was an okay film she's playing you know woman who has cancer and there's all this stuff going on i just when i see her and this is you know, she's a victim of her own success because when I saw her, I'm like, she's good, but I want to see the bubbly Meg Ryan because yep. that's what she's so good at. And, and I think that's probably what Hollywood thought, too. And she's been so good in other movies that are outside this pocket. You know, she Proof of Life is a movie that I'll I'll die on that hill. I think that's such a great movie. and I, It should have been a genre-defining movie, but her, ter- her turn in that movie is fantastic. And I just don't think... I think she was so great at this, like you said, victim of her own success, that audiences were basically not willing to give her a chance in anything that wasn't this. And while I appreciate the body of work, it's incredible. Um, I, I feel bad that she didn't necessarily get to stretch her legs, but When Harry Met Sally is an undeniable classic, one of the best that's ever been done. And uh, I, at least, thankfully, we got that 10 years of Meg Ryan just murdering romantic comedies for us. Yeah, I mean, and another one she did amazing in was Sleepless in Seattle, and I briefly yep. touched on that earlier, so I don't really want to go there now. But I want to talk about another one called It Could Happen to You, which is with someone who you would never think of when you think of romantic comedies. Because I know me, for one, when I think of romantic comedies, Nick Cage does not come no, to mind no. right away. I was so pumped when I saw you put this on the list because I've seen this one again five or six times. And the amount of people that I talk to about It Could Happen to You, and they're like, never heard of it. Never seen it. Never heard of it. It's just, it's just such a good movie. It's, it's loosely based on a true story about a cop who doesn't have enough money to give uh, the waitress uh, a tip one day when he's getting some breakfast. And so he says, well, I have a lottery ticket. Hey, if it's a winner, we'll split it. And what happens is, of course, he wins. He's married. His wife is played by Rosie Perez, who does a phenomenal fucking job. I know that mm-hmm. actually she got a lot of hate after that role because she's such a vile character in the movie. Oh, she was, but she was but so good. She was so good because Rosie Perez is just fucking good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically he splits the lottery, the, the lotto ticket with her. It explores how their relationship kind of develops. He's married. He's not. He doesn't want to cheat on his wife. And she knows that he's married. And she's just like, wow, this is actually a good guy. You see how everything evolves. It's 
it's just a really good movie, and uh, Bridget Fonda's so good in that fucking movie. Stanley Tucci plays her ex-husband, yep. who's fucking perfect. That's well, and it's got, it's got such a great <laughs> deep cast. I mean, it's got Richard Jenkins is in it, an early yep. Wendell Pierce. Mm-hmm. You know, Isaac Hayes is in it. It's, it's just... It's so good, and it's a missed opportunity for a lot of people who have watched those great mid-90s rom-coms and sort of skipped over it. And I think a lot of it might have to do with if you're going back and trying to look for a romantic comedy and you see Nicolas Cage, Bridget Fonda, you might go, I remember Bridget Fonda kind of from Jackie Brown and maybe Doc Hollywood, and (laughs) And then Nick Cage is insane. So I I don't necessarily want to watch It Could Happen to You, but they're a sweet couple. They're really great together, and it's just a fun movie. This was back when Nick Cage could actually say no to a role. So just keep that in mind that he actually chose to make this film. So it's it's really good. Um, Another one that I kind of wanted to briefly touch on, I mean, when you talk about the Mount Rushmore of romantic comedies, Notting Hill has got to be right up there. And that movie is so fucking good. I'm rooting for those characters the entire time to get out of their own way and just realize that, look, you guys are great together. Forget all the other shit outside. Forget how difficult it's going to be. Forget all the baggage you each have. Just be together because when it's just the two of you, it's so fucking good. There are three scenes in that movie that are, to me, perfect filmmaking. Combination of directing, writing, music is great. One is the dinner scene with his family. Oh, God, yeah. You know, so when I think good. I think it's his brother-in-law, but his, when his, his brother-in-law, brother-in-law asks her... his friend or whatever. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, do you make good mo- good money in movies? Uh, it's just, it's a spectacular <laughs> scene. That entire scene is so great. Then right after that, when they get into the park, is a great scene. Yep, Just yep. spectacular. Whoops the daisies. And... <laughs> It's just funny when you hear it. Uh, and yeah. then and then if your heart doesn't break when he is on that movie set and here's what she's saying to her co-star. I mean, I'm a 35-year-old man. I need some time after I hear that. Like I need a walk. I need to hit pause. I need, you know, some toffee. I need something because <laughs> the direction it's, it there kills is me. Exquisite. It honestly. Is. Like, oh god, so damn well it's done. so good. And I don't know. I would think maybe Alec Baldwin's most believable role. What do you think? <laughs> asshole actor i think asshole i can make a call beats the shit out of his girlfriend <laughs> and gives fucking hugh grant the the trash to adios you know and all it's just oh my god can you bring up some really really cold water Is that something? <laughs> i don't want to get you brits in trouble because you like your shit warm i mean come on that's, that's just really it's good, just writing. good and, and, and it, again sort of top to bottom it's great directing wonderful casting the writing's beautiful the music's beautiful it's just one of those rare, perfect movies. I mean, it just is. Yeah. But, you know... And, you wh- know, the first time I had seen Rice Evans was in that film. And, yep. God, I'm thankful for it. Because yep. he's so fucking good. He's another one you put in the category of never been bad. Never. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter how bad the film is. He's never been bad. And one of my favorite turns of his is another Richard Curtis flick, Pirate Radio. Oh, that's such a good movie. Him yeah. and Philip Seymour Hoffman climbing up Oh, together. God. <laughs> So good. So good. But another another great film, uh, and this is a fantasy romantic comedy, but it, I, again, I've seen it dozens of times. I mean, I've seen it a bunch, is The Princess Bride. And, you know, it combines a lot of stuff that I think romantic comedies play in the modern era, and it just set it back in the swashbuckling era. I don't need to explain to anybody what The Princess Bride is, 
but Rob Reiner's in his directing heyday where he just could not miss. And mm-hmm. he takes this story written by Will, William Goldman, who, I mean, if that guy scratched something on a piece of toilet paper, it should be nominated for an Oscar. He's the best writer it's ever been in the history of Hollywood. No argument for me. You know, Cary Elwes, don't know why his career wasn't bigger. He was a perfect leading man, charming, attractive, swashbuckling, great action sequences. Andre the Giant was hilarious. Robin <laughs> Wright was incredible. Um this movie quote after quote after quote i mean we want to talk about quotes in romantic comedies every scene is a memorable quote wallace sean billy crystal <laughs> yep unstoppable in this movie everybody's great so th- those That's are probably so good you know those are short list probably my favorites but i mean there's so many more to, to go into you know oh this I, could be a 13 14 hour <laughs> podcast easily i mean if we, we could talk about princess bride alone for that long so yeah. I, I don't know i this kind of leads me because i mean we've talked about a lot of these films we talked about a lot of how, how great they are the writing we got to have a great cast that that yep. really is what starts it and so i kind of want to go over what I think would be my ultimate romantic comedy cast. Um, I'm going to get into a plot that I have, a plot idea I have later on. But basically, this is, if you take them at the right time period, um, this is my ultimate cast here. And so for a male lead, I have Tom Hanks, who I think is the king of these. As a female lead, I have Anna Faris. Hold, hold up, hold up. Let me stop you right there. Yeah. Tom Hanks, I, I think we need to tell everybody Tom Hanks when. Like Tom Hanks, Captain Phillips, Tom Hanks, or Tom Hanks... This is Tom Hanks, Sleepless in Seattle, Tom Hanks. Sleepless in Seattle, Tom Hanks, thank you. Sleepless in Seattle, Tom Hanks. Uh, Anna Ferris, uh, Anna Ferris, I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, she's just good. She's hilarious. I would say her in the Just Friends uh, waiting time period. Um, and for male best friend, I have Steve Zahn. So this good. is that thing you do, Steve Zahn. Yep. And this isn't even Steve, you need to do something different. Just be your character in that thing you do. Yep. So Steve Zahn's another one. I wish he had a big. I'm I'm waiting for him to blow up. I can't I wait for him. He to wants blow up. to. I've heard I, him in interviews. He wants to just live on his fucking farm or wherever in obscurity, and then come to Hollywood and bust out a great a great performance every now and then, and go back. I get that, but that's too selfish. I need I need more Steve Zahn. <laughs> You're right. No, that's a fair point. Um, as the female best friend, I think the ultimate female best friend in any of these is Judy Greer. Take wedding planner, planner Judy Greer. Take what uh, what women want, Judy Greer. Take any Judy Greer you want. Twenty seven dresses, Judy Greer. She's a, she's All an unstoppable. Judy Greers. One of my favorite stories about Judy Greer is that most people who are on a movie set with her say that she's the funniest person that's on the movie set. Period. But she's I never gotten it. that leading actress part, which I think she would just kill at. But oh, she would dominate. Yeah. Uh, and for seasoned actor cameo, I would love to have Jack Lemon and Goldie Hawn. I think these two iconic. So this is Jack Lemon, um, seasoned actor. So we're going to say Bagger Vance Jack Lemon. Let's just throw that one out there for everyone. <laughs> that Matt Damon <laughs> classic. Yes. Um, don't get me started on my impressions there, or we will get censored by the FCC, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and then Goldie Hawn, obviously, because Goldie Hawn's just fucking perfect. So this is... Uh, First Wives Club, Goldie Hawn, I would say. Oh, that's a great movie, by the way. Yeah, very good film. Um, for a little, there's always got to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, some kind of cameo. I want Ryan Reynolds, and give me, give me Van Wilder, Ryan Reynolds. You know, he's that's that's a great Ryan. Can Reynolds. we just have a supercut of you saying over and over and over again, "I want Ryan Reynolds"? <laughs> Moving on. 
Um, <laughs> celebrity playing a version of themselves. I want Reese Witherspoon. She's a rom-com queen, but I really want her to be a bitch in this movie because Reese Witherspoon is not a bitch in real life. Um, I was actually at a Globe, uh, Harlem Globetrotters game a couple weeks ago. She was there. They brought her out on the court, and she was like the nicest person in the world. But I want to see her as a bitch in this movie. I, mean, I think it could happen. Crazy flex on the name drop. Wow. Yeah, the Harlem Globetrotters. I hear you. Wow, um, <laughs> roundabout way to get there. Yeah. Um, so crazy male ex. I want Stanley Tucci. Basically, the it could happen to you, Stanley Tucci. Um, and then crazy female ex, Cameron Diaz. And I'm basing this on Vanilla Sky, Cameron Diaz. She was crazy in that movie. <laughs> so I know that's a lot, but I just I got to get those characters out there. Cole. Give me yours. And I'll do these quick. Um, so I need Michael Keaton, and I'm talking Night Shift Michael Keaton, maybe Batman Michael Keaton as my uh, my male lead. I think he's gotten short shrift in this category. I think he's funny. I think that he's charming. I think he's sarcastic. I think he's got kind of all the things that you're getting out of a Billy Crystal, out of a Tom Hanks, even out of a Ryan Reynolds. Maybe not the abs, yeah. but everything else you're getting uh, from Michael Keaton. Um, I need Last Holiday Queen Latifah as my female lead. Yeah. She is so smart in every film she's in. She's so incredibly brilliant. She's beautiful. She's funny. She's gregarious. In every movie I've seen her in, she's up for anything. I'm, I'm one of the biggest Queen Latifah fans out there. Uh, male best friend, Michael Pena. The Pena! All day long on Michael Pena, okay? I Chips is a terrible film, but it is worth it for a particular two minutes. And what I'm going to do is, for any of you out there that want to watch Chips, and if you guess the two-minute sequence I'm talking about, we're going to bring you on the pod and talk to you for a couple of minutes about it, okay? <laughs> that is a guarantee, okay? You can hit us up at SigBurnsPod on Twitter, or you can email me at CigaretteBurnsPodcast at Yahoo.com, and we will bring you on. I'm not even going to drop any hints because I, I can't. I can't do it justice. <laughs> and so uh, for the female best friend, Emma Thompson, another rom-com darling out of the Richard Great Curtis one. catalog. And she's just, who doesn't want to be friends with Emma Thompson? Your heart yeah. breaks in love, actually. I mean, I, I it breaks still thinking about her listening to that Joni Mitchell album. And oh, I just want to be there for her and talk to her. Like, she's just so great. And Alan Rickman's character did have an affair in that film. Yes, that, yep. that is, Richard that Curtis came out and said that, yeah. So, seasoned actor cameo, I'm going for Danny Glover. I just saw, I'm, I'm hoping Danny Glover's going to have a career renaissance after this film, but I just watched Sorry to Bother You, and we'll be doing that review on the next pod, but he's such, he's so good, he's so funny, and you kind of forget the gravitas that Donald, uh, uh, Danny Glover brought to just the screen in general, and so it was so good to see him again. So he'd be my seasoned actor cameo. My is seasoned- shooter Danny Glover? Is that yeah, you know? this would be shooter. This would probably be shooter Danny Glover. That, that's a that's an excellent yeah. spot. Um, seasoned actress cameo would be Jennifer Lopez. Not that she's seasoned; she looks twenty four years old. <laughs> but I, you know, Jennifer Lo- any Jennifer Lopez. I don't care if it's Fly Girls Jennifer Lopez. I just want her in there uh, doing something. And I, I've always wanted to see her in a supporting character because I think certain movies are really compelling when the supporting character is the one you can't take your eyes off of. So yeah. I, I would like to see her there. As the doctor, lawyer, accountant, I need Louis Guzman because <laughs> he's hilarious and perfect. Uh, oh, the Guzman. <laughs> celebrity playing a version of himself is going to be Matt LeBlanc. And if you haven't seen episodes, we haven't talked about a lot of TV on this podcast, and we will, I promise. 
episodes is phenomenal. You can stream it on Netflix right now. And it's Matt LeBlanc playing a weird-ass version of Matt LeBlanc. And he's perfect. He won a Golden Globe for it. He's great. Uh, crazy Male X, Chris O'Dowd. I've never seen him be crazy, so I'm curious. I want to see it. Like, I, I could see him being more the stalker than the crazy. But, I, you know, watching him on Get Shorty, there's a little bit of a different edge there to him. And I'm, it, it's intriguing. He's and a talented cra- actor. That's he just true. is. Yeah, he's just yeah. great. And then Crazy Female X, Gwyneth Paltrow. I I never seen her do it, but I bet she could. Oh yeah, she could goop her way all through that thing. Yep, That'd be awesome. <laughs> so that's um, that's my uh, that's my all time cast. And one of the things that I'll say, you know, before we move on to a plot, which Jed gets all the credit for this plot, I had nothing to do with this, but one of the things I would like to see happen, and Crazy Rich Asians is a great step in the right direction, and you know, think like a man and. Uh, the wood and you know all that stuff I'd like to see more diversity in these romantic comedies because even when we've been talking about the great classics of all time these are primarily white cast top to bottom and in situations that don't seem to necessarily go broad spectrum and so I would love to see a diversity of filmmakers more diverse writers and more diverse cast, because that's one way to grow the genre and that's really all I want to see I want to see more of these films and there's way more stories to tell um, than what we just get on the Upper East Side. So that's exploring different cultures would be. I'm right there with you, man. It would be amazing. It, it'd be incredible, and there's so much out there to tell. There's so much out there, and I just want to see it. Well, I had an idea for a rom com because in doing all this research and in watching these movies for years, I've just never seen this done. And apologies if this is a movie that's out there, but I haven't seen it. You know the classic switch body trope. You know Freaky Friday. Uh, Ryan Reynolds was in one with Jason Bateman, I believe. That's my idea. So a man and woman go off on a first date. It goes great. They hit it off. They spend the night together. But when they wake up, they're in each other's body. So the man has become the woman and the woman has become the man. And so now we see them go back to their group of friends and we see how after this perfect date, what the guys are saying to them. Like, oh man, so you you did this, you did that, blah, blah, blah. The priority's there. And then for the woman, you see when she goes back to her friends and what her friends are asking. I think it would be a a unique way to show the different perspectives that um, each gender has and that they they kind of bring to the table in terms of what are we valuing after this? What are we looking for after a first date? All that kind of stuff. And I think each character would then gain a deeper understanding of the opposite sex. But obviously it's a rom-com, so we got to have a scene where the man as a woman gets fucked by the woman who's the man now. you got to have it, right? It'd be fucking so, great. So two, two things to say about that. Number one, the movie you're talking about with Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman is called The Change-Up, and it's yeah, really funny. I knew really it was funny. called The Change-Up, and I didn't want to get it wrong, though. Damn and it. it's really funny. Number yeah. two, I would watch this movie. I thought when you, when you gave me the plot, I thought I was going to have changes to make. I thought I was going to add a couple things. <laughs> nope. I read it, and I'm like, I will watch that film. So we got to get this made, all right? So Netflix, yeah. Um, yeah. we're already greenlit, I assume, because we have yeah, an idea. Yeah, that sounds right. That's so. All right, well, we we got to do some justice here. we got to give some recommendations to the people. Yeah, we've so been I'll shy on recommendations off. the last few episodes. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah. yeah, sorry, guys. So here are some recommendations in the vein of romantic comedies. Um, the Secret of My Success. I don't know if this was a movie that was seen a lot. It's a Michael J. Fox film. It's so fucking good. It's from the 80s. I I love this movie. Um, Some Like It Hot, we touched on briefly. Just watch that thing. Better Off Dead, a John Cusack classic. Oh, yes, it is. So good. I was pissed you stole that from me. That's a great movie. He skis down a mountain with one ski backwards. That's all you need to know. Yeah, he. Oh, God, it's so good. Um, Blast from the Past. Brendan Fraser, I'm happy that he's having a career resurgence. Um, He was so good in this movie. 
it, this movie is just fucking hilarious. So watch Blast from the Past. Uh, Christopher Walken, so goddamn good in that movie. Um, and Sissy Spacek. Harold and Maude is the last one. And this is kind of a, a very dark romantic comedy. It is. Um, Classic, though. Fantastic. Ruth Gordon, film. Bud Court, so good in this movie together. I don't want to say anything about it because I don't want to ruin any aspects of it for anyone. But just go watch it. It's so good. Cole, you got some recommendations for the people? I absolutely do. Uh, first and foremost, think like a man. Uh, I'm a big Taraji P. Henson fan. I'm glad to see she sort of seems to be in her moment right now. And I hope that it continues. But her and Michael Ely have fantastic chemistry in Think Like a Man. Just a fantastic film. The second one is Sabrina. Now, many of you may have seen the remake with Harrison Ford and Andy McDowell. Very good film. I believe Greg Kinnear's in it as well. But it is nothing compared to the original with Humphrey Bogart and Audrey Hepburn. Written by Billy Wilder. I know, big shock for you guys now. Um, <laughs> but check that out. It is so great. Another one where chemistry just jumps off the screen. And if there's any genre that needs chemistry more than any other one, it's rom-coms. And the two leads, you know who they are when you say one name. Bogart and Audrey. You know who they are. So the next one, another one from the Brendan Fraser heyday where he was the man, is Bedazzled. Okay? Bedazzled is an overlooked movie. It's another remake, but this is Brendan Fraser, Elizabeth Hurley, and it's just funny. You know, there's really not a ton to say about it. He's got a crush. He's kind of a nerdy guy, and he's got a crush on his co-worker, and he makes a deal with the devil, played by Elizabeth Hurley, to get the girl, and it just sort of, he gets all these wishes, and he tries to make it happen. Some of the best acting he's ever done is when he plays the sensitive guy on the beach, crying every time the sun is setting. <laughs> I just... I laugh out loud every fucking time. It's so good. Sorry to interrupt. No, you. not at I all. Just had to throw no, that it's in great. There. <laughs> no, Bedazzled is just a funny movie. Uh, the next one I talked about a little bit last holiday. Great cast. It's got Queen Latifah, LL Cool J, Gerard Depardieu, Timothy Hutton. Uh, you know, I mean, hadn't seen him in a while. Oscar winner Timothy Hutton. But uh, it's basically this woman. She works at a department store. She's got a crush on a coworker, LL Cool J, but she also wants to become a chef. And she gets. Uh, terrible diagnosis she's gonna die soon so she takes all of her money and she goes off to this hotel in europe and she just is gonna spend all of her money and eat at the best restaurant in the world and meets all these people and it's just so much fun and you've heard it you've heard me saying that word over and over and over again and i think at it's very core a romantic comedy has to be fun even the dark yep. ones are fun have very fun elements i mean the, the last scene of the apartment is one of the funniest things i've ever heard where she's just he's just jack lemon wants to say i love you and shirley mcclain's just just deal the cards it's just fun like it, it, it's great yeah and that leads me to my last recommendation which is the apartment if you haven't seen Shocker. it you have to see it there's no yeah. other, there's no two ways about it if you like romantic comedies and you haven't seen the apartment stop this podcast rate review us we appreciate that and then go see the apartment <laughs> Well, that does it for this episode of Cigarette Burns. Um, you can hit us up on Twitter at, at SigBurnsPod, and the same for Instagram. And I can't remember the email address, Cole. Why don't you give it to the people? That is CigaretteBurnsPodcast at Yahoo.com. And another thing... That's we... right, Yahoo. I couldn't remember that part. <laughs> and uh, one thing Jen and I have been wanting to tell you guys is... If you rate and review us and you leave us a movie to watch, you give us a recommendation because we're always looking for recommendations. And whether you send us an email, whatever you do, we'll watch it. We'll review it, okay? Because we want to we want to learn more about movies we haven't seen, okay? So we've been getting some great uh, feedback from you guys on Twitter. Thank you so much for that. Been getting some great emails. Um, but subscribe, rate, review. 
Let us know what you think, and also let us know some movies to watch, and we'll watch them, we'll review them, and we'll definitely give you credit on the pod. And again, if anybody gets that Michael Pena thing right, you're coming on, you're talking to us for a couple minutes, all right? I look forward to that. Thanks a lot, guys. Later, birders. Oh,